to By Any Means Necessary, your radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the spread of COVID-19 in U.S. prisons, also going to be talking about the dangers of the weaponization of space and also going to be discussing the 51st anniversary of the Chicano moratorium on the Vietnam War. And as always, at 320 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, on this last day of Black August, the different events throughout the history of this month over the past few days alone reflect all the reasons we continue the struggles in the streets and against those who wield the crushing power of the state against the people, because the issue at the center of these historical struggles persists today. Emmett Till was murdered on August 28, 1955. The two white men who murdered him were tried and acquitted of the crime by an all-white jury, but they bragged openly about their actions, knowing they wouldn't suffer any consequences for the kidnapping, torture, and murder of a little black boy. Carol Bryant, the wife of one of the murderers, finally admitted in 2017 that the allegations that sparked the attack on 14-year-old Emmett Till that he whistled at her and grabbed her and was menacing and sexually crude toward her were lies. Bryant told these lies on the stand during the trial of her then husband and brother-in-law for the murder of Emmett Till. August 27, 1960 is known as Axe Handle Saturday because a violent white mob assaulted students staging a peaceful lunch counter demonstration organized by the Jacksonville Youth Council of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People or the NAACP. White people started spitting on the protesters and yelling racial slurs at them. And when that didn't force the students to leave the lunch counter, they were then beaten with wooden handles that had not yet had metal axe heads attached to them. Imagine if the axe heads had been attached. The violent white mob didn't just assault the kids at the lunch counter. They also attacked any black person they saw on the street. And the police, well, they stood idly by watching the beatings go on until members of a black street gang called the Boomerangs attempted to protect those being attacked. And then the cops joined in with the white mob in attacking black folks. Not one person in the white mob was ever held accountable for their crimes. Not one cop was either. On August 28, 1963, hundreds of thousands of people from across the United States marched on Washington for jobs and freedom. The march is sadly, but quite intentionally, watered down to the March on Washington. And even Dr. Martin Luther King June's iconic I Have a Dream statement in a speech is narrowed down to Just that statement, the entire speech is pretty much ignored. But it was much more than that, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. The date of the march itself was important. It was held on the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 to symbolize the freedom still denied to the descendants of enslaved people. And eight years to the day, that 14-year-old Emmett Till was lynched in Mississippi to symbolize the demand for justice that was still denied black people in the white supremacist judicial and legal system. 
people mistakenly believed that Dr. King was the major organizer of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, but he was not. It was largely black labor that was the driving force behind the march as A. Philip Randolph, president of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and longtime racial justice activist and organizer, revived the march that he was organizing in 1941 against segregation in the defense industry that scared President Theodore Roosevelt so badly that Roosevelt ultimately desegregated the defense industry rather than have 10,000 black folks marching on Washington then. And lead organizer Bayard Rustin actually closed the 1963 event with a list of 10 concrete political and economic demands that are never talked about, that included comprehensive civil rights legislation that guaranteed access to all public accommodations, decent housing, adequate and integrated education, and the right to vote, a federal jobs program, a raise in the federal minimum wage that would provide decent wages, and other demands. August 30th, 1967 is when a People's Tribunal was held at Central United Church of Christ in Detroit, where people tried the officers who had killed three young black men, Carl Cooper, 17, Fred Temple, 18, and Aubrey Poland, 19, and carried out the brutal beating and torture of several young men and women during a law enforcement raid at the Algiers Motel that was held in one of the most violent and pressing uprising of the 20th century in Detroit. See, what happened at the Algiers Motel? Well, on July 26, 1967, the third day of one of the worst riots of the 20th century, or uprisings, as I prefer to call them, Detroit police, the National Guard, and Michigan State Police responded to a report of a sniper at the Algiers Motel and Manor House Annex. Once inside, the cops interrogated 10 motel guests and ordered five black teenagers and two white women into the hallway where they forced them to stand spread eagle facing a wall. The cops beat the teenagers, hitting one so severely that they broke a rifle. They stripped the women and then took the men one by one into a separate motel room where they interrogated them. A series of shots were fired and three young men were killed. The medical examiner would later rule that the three teenagers who were killed lay in non-aggressive postures at the time of their deaths. And though the police maintained that they killed those three young men in self-defense, no gun was ever found at the motel. There was, in fact, no sniper at the Algiers Hotel at all. But the criminal justice system didn't find the Detroit cops guilty of any crimes. A murder trial in 1968, a subsequent federal civil rights violation trial in 1970 resulted in acquittals from all white juries. Then on August 29, 1970, at least 25,000 people gathered in East Los Angeles for the National Chicano Moratorium March to protest the Vietnam War, focusing on the disproportionate number of poor and working class Latinos killed in the war. Police fired tear gas canisters into the crowd, killing three Mexican-Americans, including Ruben Salazar, a noticed Latino journalist who was struck in the head by one of the projectiles and died instantly. The Chicano community continued to organize against the Vietnam War, focusing on issues of inequality both abroad and at home, including police brutality. 
Ruben Salazar said about the responsibility of journalists that, quote, the government should tell us what they think, of course, but they certainly should not try to intimidate us. They don't want the press to rock the boat. And I think the press's obligation is to rock the boat. After all this time and all this struggle, we're still having to rock the boat. We journalists and activists and radicals alike, because the issues of white supremacy, racial discrimination, police brutality and insane, endless war that all those who struggled against them before us still affect working class and poor, disproportionately black and brown people in this country today. This is why we need to study and know this history so that we can realize that these issues still exist because too many have ignored them for too long. We cannot afford to ignore them any longer. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman. Here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We are now happy to be joined by Malik, the founder of the Concentration COVID movement. Malik, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Absolutely. And Malik, as the coronavirus global pandemic continues to affect people all across the earth, certainly in the United States as well, I mean, there's an aspect and a population that is particularly vulnerable to the coronavirus that uh, I feel is largely left out of the conversation, and that's uh, incarcerated people who I think because of the conditions of prisons and jails are particularly susceptible to possibly contracting the disease. I mean, some facilities in the U.S. um, are approaching 4,000 cases. And and in the U.S. in general, um, which has some of the highest rates of uh, COVID-19, about 9 in 100 people have had the virus. But inside U.S. prisons, that rate is something like 34 out of 100. And, you know, I mean, when talking about uh, uh, the conditions, I mean, we're talking about people who um, are often living in close quarters where the level of health care and sanitation and food quality are are often not that high. I mean, it just seems as though not a lot of serious uh, thought has been given on uh, how to best protect these people. I think perhaps it's a reflection of how uh, incarcerated people are seen in this society. But I was uh, hoping you could sort of break down, Malik, how you all at the concentration COVID movement sort of uh, see this issue and why it's particularly uh, prevalent amongst prisoners? Sure. You know, I think that uh, one of the things that I like to uh, make uh, our audience aware is that the concentration COVID movement was initially spawned as a result of this COVID outbreak uh, and the conditions within these institutions, um, particularly uh, jails, prisons, and and even nursing homes. Uh, So we found that these were some of the most deplorable circumstances uh, in, in, in the city, in the country, uh, to be honest with you. And it didn't really seem uh, of any real interest uh, to the mayor and those uh, in other uh, powerful political positions to do very much about the overcrowding or the contact tracing or even uh, the decontamination 
uh, in certain areas. I mean, I, along with many others, have been arduously working on trying to make the conditions a lot better to keep everyone on the inside safe. Uh, and this was inclusive of even many of the staff and the officers, uh, because we have had officers die and pass away at one of the facilities uh, that I were in. So, you know, this is really an issue that I think we really need uh, to get out uh, to begin to allow people, hopefully uh, they will be galvanized by how this crowding is. I mean, there are people actually sleeping uh, basically on top of each other, head to head and foot to foot. Um, and, and one of the most uh, uh, serious things that I think I want to mention is that not only is COVID spreading rapidly within these institutions, but there seems to be a real issue with staff um, wearing masks. Um, they don't really seem to take it very seriously uh, inside of these institutions. And there isn't any real accountability. I have filed several grievances. I've even gotten a letter back from the CDC uh, instructing the facility that I was in that they had not been adhering to the social distancing policy and that they were in violation. Uh, and their response was, that's not our problem. You know, like, um, you know, to, you know, tell the CDC that, uh, you know, we don't really have the manpower or uh, they're talking about closing prisons. So we don't really have space to separate you guys. Um, and this was their position. You know, so this is something that I think we really need to uh, to really highlight and to get out uh, to the public. Yeah, definitely, Malik. And aside from the uh, outbreak of COVID-19 at so many uh, incarceration uh, centers, um, this outbreaks are not uncommon in these places because of the overcrowding that has always existed. The Federal Bureau of Prisons, along with nine state prison systems, they've been operating at over 100 percent capacity for quite some time. Even with early release programs and home confinement programs, they still operate at 100 percent prisoner capacity, which I think speaks to the mass incarceration uh, system that is still very, very alive and well in this country. Um, and then, you know, you do point to uh, the correctional officers that are driving I think some of the, uh, the this rise in the infection rate among the incarcerated, but it's not just COVID-19 that's been a problem in these environments. There have been outbreaks of hepatitis B and C, as well as tuberculosis and other contractable diseases in prisons. How big of a problem has this been and for how long? Uh, well, to, to my understanding, this has been a problem uh, long again, long before COVID, uh, I have, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you slice it, uh, you know, have been uh, incarcerated for over 33 years. Um, and, you know, I have been fighting against some of these things uh, for a very long time. I mean, all the way uh, up into the state of New York, Attica and Kaksaki, and working my way down into the city. Um, so this has been a problem for uh, a number of years, as long as I can remember. Uh, and there doesn't really seem to be any real, um, any real interest in, in changing um, what the uh, protocol, the policy is, or, uh, you know, making people accountable. So this has been an ongoing issue. Uh, you know, so interesting because I was watching a news report a few months back before 
our governor was, you know, forced out uh, because of his behavior. But this issue that he had with the nursing homes and the deaths, there was a similar issue happening within these institutions. They were not really uh, accounting. You know, the numbers were skewed. Uh, we have had reports uh, uh, from the Board of Corrections that uh, the numbers were being skewed with regards to those who had passed away, where they passed away at, when and where these individuals were released and some who had died as a result of catching COVID inside the institution and immediately passing away outside. I've gotten my hands on some of those documents and have made some copies of certain articles. So just to like in a nutshell, to answer your question, this is an issue that's been going on for a very, very long time. And I think it is something that we really have to start focusing on because most, if not all, of the men in most of these uh, jails and prisons uh, will be home, you know, and they have families. So, you know, so here we're talking about the sons, the daughters, the brothers, the uncles, the aunts, the nieces, nephews, fathers of, of, of someone, you know. Um, so, you know, this is something that I hope that we can get some, make some headway with after, uh, after this interview. Definitely. Because, I mean, it's a human rights issue. And I think it speaks to, I mean, the depth of exploitation and disregarding of the humanity of uh, incarcerated people, um, which, you know, I, I think is frankly characteristic of the mass incarceration system itself. And the pandemic, I think, has just sort of sharpened that contradiction. And I want to circle back to something you mentioned a little earlier in our conversation, Malik, when you talked about um, how. Uh, uh, correctional officers are refusing to mask. I mean, not only that, I mean, th there's also uh, some hard data that shows that many uh, corrections officers are outright uh, declining vaccines. And this is an important point because the reasoning, because when one looks at this issue, I think it's an obvious first question to say, OK, well, why don't we just make vaccines widely available to incarcerated people? But the response from uh, uh, many corrections facilities is is, well, we'll just sort of prioritize focusing on vaccinating the the officers and this will somehow act as a, a barrier of protection for uh, the prisoners. Well, I mean, just in April of this year, there was a, a report that uh, was compiled at uh, prisonpolicy.org. It was compiled from the UCLA Law COVID-19 Behind the Bars Data Project, the Marshall Project and the Associated Press among other sources. And according to their calculations with the rate of staff immunizations in 36 states and the Bureau of Prisons, they find in those uh, jurisdictions that the median vaccination rate, which means uh, the percentage of staff who had at least one vaccine uh, for COVID-19 was only 48 percent. And in states like Alabama and Michigan, it was even worse, where only 10 percent of staff had gotten at least one uh, COVID vaccine dose. And uh, in March, the Marshall Project reported, quote, in, Mar in Massachusetts, more than half the people employed by the Department of Corrections declined to be immunized. A statewide survey in California showed that half of all correctional employees will wait to be vaccinated. In Rhode Island, 30% of prison staff have refused the vaccine, a higher rate than the 
incarcerated, according to the state's Department of Corrections. And, you know, it's so bad that in states like um, Colorado uh, that they're now offering staffers five hundred dollars to get the vaccine. And so for me, Malik, this is just uh, 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 not only, I think, another example of what I think we can safely call the violence that officers uh, sort of exact upon incarcerated people. But I mean, it, it also shows this whole notion of officers being used as a barrier uh, of the pandemic against the uh, prisoners is just, you know, sort of a completely failed tactic. And so, you know, it, it, it again just sort of feels like um, a sort of deep way of just ignoring uh, the safety of these institutions uh, uh, filled with uh, actual human beings. And uh, uh, I mean, it's just sort of a sad commentary, I think, on just um, uh, how prioritized incarcerated people even are. And not only in situations like this, but in general, you know what I mean? This is correct. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to just jump on and, and mention something to you. If you, you know, I did an interview with um, one of the, uh, uh, one of the head uh, directors, I believe, of the Marshall Project, whom you might be familiar with, I believe is Kerry Blakinger. Uh, and, and, and we did an interview on the Brian Lair Show on December 28th. You can listen to that podcast uh, pertaining to COVID within these institutions. And, you know, it's so interesting that, you know, many of the men and women who work within these institutions are all from the same neighborhoods that most of these uh, detainees and prisoners are from. You know, uh, so, you know, it's a very interesting kind of in what I call is like a Superman complex. You know, it's something about when you when that uniform is put on, you know, and please, I don't want to spin this any particular way, but it's a certain kind of psychology uh, that happens when an individual decides that he doesn't want to really adhere uh, to the general notion, uh, you know, that the regular population has to adhere to. You know, uh, and that's what we're seeing. I've talked to many correction officers, both male and female, uh, who are very, very adamant about a nomad. I would rather lose my job, I quote from one of them, uh, before I get vaccinated. And I said, no problem. I said, my question to you is, you know, you come into this facility. You are not wearing a mask. I've had several uh, verbal uh, discourses with many of them. And I said, look, my life should be as important as yours. You know, you're coming into the facility. I'm not leaving. So that means that whatever gets in here comes in here by you bringing in or someone else from the outside. And I like for you to put your mask on, you know, and, and in many cases I was met with this, uh, you know, this defiance, you know, um, you know, look, I don't feel the need to wear a mask, uh, and I'm not getting vaccinated. Uh, I would rather quit before I get vaccinated. When you look at the recent numbers of those who have uh, have not come to work, you know, have not called, I mean, no call, no show, you know, in the Department of Corrections, which is uh, one of the most daunting situations that uh, the New York City uh, Department of Corrections is facing right now, um, which is why uh, certain officers are doing triples and even quadruples you know, uh, working. I mean, most of them are sleeping on the job, you know, throughout the entire tour because they're on triples and, 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 and quadruples uh, because there aren't men and women who decide that they just don't want to be there uh, because of these, uh, these rules. Uh, they just feel as though uh, they don't have to, they don't have to buy by them. 
Uh, so this is definitely something that I hope um, uh, will change. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Malik, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the profiteering off of the weaponization of space. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Carl Grossman, an author, TV program host, and professor of journalism at the State University of New York College at Old Westbury. Carl, thanks so much for joining us. A pleasure to be with you. Carl, you wrote this great article in uh, Covert Action magazine that I think is is brilliant, but it's also frightening <laughs> because the title itself, I think, speaks volume. You you call it the insane U.S. plan to spend billions on weaponizing space that makes defense contractors jump for joy, but the rest of the world cowers in horror at the prospects of new arms race leading to World War III. And I think it's important for us to start with understanding that in 1967, there really was a treaty put together by the United States, Great Britain, and the former Soviet Union that has wide support around the world to not weaponize space. This was a conversation that was had among the world superpowers uh, that were in the midst of a Cold War back then to say, look, space is off limits for our insane weaponization plans. And the establishment of the U.S. Space Force is a result of the U.S. breaking away from that treaty. And and I mean, what are your thoughts on, first of all, that treaty in 1967 and the fact that the United States uh, has basically broken that treaty with the establishment of the Space Force in 2019 in the first place? Well, uh, I interviewed Craig Eisendroth, still around. He's down in Philadelphia, and he, as a young U.S. State Department officer, was involved uh, with counterparts from, as you mentioned, uh, Great Britain and the former Soviet Union in putting together this, this landmark treaty, the Outer Space Treaty, which most of the world now, nations of the world, have joined into uh, it, it sets aside space for peaceful purposes. Uh, as Craig uh, told me, I, I wrote a book a few years ago, Weapons in Space. Uh, what he said is, in terms of what they were trying to do, we sought to de-weaponize space before it got weaponized to keep war out of space. Uh, the problem has come now with uh, the U.S. moving ahead. Uh, well, as our former president, Donald Trump, said, and he, he was the champion of this new U.S. Space Force, a sixth branch of U.S. Armed Forces. What he said was, um, uh, it's not enough to have American presence in space. We must have American dominance 
in space. And this, this space force so would be central to that. Uh, they've been developing uh, weaponry uh, to uh, base in space. And, uh, and then let me just, just add, the Outer Space Treaty prohibits weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons in space. But what Russia, China, and U.S. neighbor Canada have been trying to, uh, for decades, have been trying to get enacted is the is an extension to the Outer Space Treaty. It's called the Paros for Prevention of an Arms Race in Outer Space Treaty. But at the United Nations, and I've been there and I watched this, the United States uh, won't support the Paros Treaty, and because the Committee on Disarmament at the UN is based on a consensus model, Essentially, the U.S. has vetoed this effort going on for decades by China and by Russia and by Canada to indeed keep space for peace. It would, uh, Paris Treaty would forbid not just weapons of mass destruction and nuclear weapons, but any weapons in space. And, you know, you did mention Trump and and yes, this uh, Space Force itself was established under the Trump administration. But let's not act as if President Biden is doing anything different because has he actually supported this effort? Um, He hasn't pulled back on the U.S. Space Force and he's actually gone further, uh, hasn't he, to provide additional funds for the expansion of the sixth branch of the military, uh, actually putting his full support behind it. How much money is involved uh, in uh, the expansion of this new uh, sixth branch of the military space force uh, that Biden is now uh, set to allocate to the weaponization of space? Well, for next year, they're talking about $17.3 billion. But that's just the start. I mean, uh, uh, arming the heavens, uh, uh, placing weapons in space, it's not like buying a Bradley fighting vehicle. It's going to take many millions, indeed billions of dollars more. And just to go back, if we could, to Biden, because it's been a great disappointment. Uh, His uh, spokesperson, Jen Psaki, uh, what she told reporters, this was a press conference back in February, This new service, the Space Force, has the full support of the Biden administration. We're not revisiting the decision. And let me add also, when the legislation which uh, provides for a U.S. Space Force, a National Defense Authorization Act, was passed in Congress, it received overwhelming support, not all Democrats, but uh, overwhelming support from Democrats in the U.S. Senate and in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, it, it's it's something that I think uh, needs grassroots efforts to stop. Uh, in fact, let me just insert right now for folks listening, if you want to get involved in this effort to keep space for peace, get involved with the global network against weapons and nuclear power in space. And uh, the the link uh, online is space for numeral four peace dot org. In fact, the global network is going to be holding a space for a space for peace week uh, in October next month. Soon to be next month, uh, 
uh, with with meetings, with conferences, with actions all over the world. So uh, it turns out that uh, Biden didn't uh, roll back on this uh, this Trump uh, space force plan. He's continuing with it, putting more money into it. So it'll take uh, action, I think, at the grassroots in the United States in particular, uh, but indeed all around the world, because other countries, France, Germany, Japan, since the creation of the Space Force by the United States, they've uh, established their own space forces. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just thinking back to when the Donald Trump administration launched this, you know, a, a space force. And I think it was, you know, in a way, I mean, it was ridiculed and criticized. I mean, it sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie, but I mean, it really is obviously a very uh, serious thing we're discussing here, uh, uh, Carl, and the fact that it's been uh, picked up by uh, the Biden administration, which, you know, I mean, we were told would 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 run counter to so many things uh, in the, the Trump administration, I think is very telling about the aim of uh, the U.S. government, uh, whether the, the ruling party is Democrat or Republican. And I really want to drill down on sort of the threat that this could potentially um, pose to humanity should this a uh, new arms race in space uh continue to escalate I, I don't think it's an exaggeration for uh, uh to phrase it the way you did in the title of your piece uh, in terms of uh, possibly leading to world war three because when we talk about the persistence of the united states on this point and the notion of weaponizing space i mean how else can we see that but then to uh uh be another play for, you know, full spectrum dominance, which I often, you know, describe as world domination in terms of the intention of the U.S. And I think that's true. But I, I mean, clearly we're seeing it to extend out into space itself. So it's a pretty profound um, sort of run here for um, a, a complete control over even, you know, the, the heavens themselves. And it's just I mean, I mean, I have to call it sick, frankly, because of the, the, the depth of control that we see the U.S. trying to exert here. And it's just clear, Carl, that there really has to be a sort of rolling back of this um, in a serious way to try to stave off, you know, the, the worst potential consequences. Well, it, it's uh, we're at a turning point. I mean, uh, I, I, I have spoken to uh, diplomats from uh, from Russia. Uh, I've been to Russia several times, uh, speaking on, on space issues. Uh, in fact, I was initially invited by Alexei Yablokov, who uh, uh, he passed on so sadly two years ago. He was the environmental advisor to both Yeltsin and Gorbachev. And he's seeing my writings over the years, uh, had me go come over to Russia. I've been to China. I've spoken uh, to diplomats uh, from China. I've spoken numerous times at the United Nations on this issue. And uh, the message I get from uh, diplomats from Russia and from China is that we want to expand the Outer Space Treaty with the Paros Treaty, no weapons in space. We don't want to waste our national uh, treasuries on on uh, all kind of money, all kind of rubles of, of to weaponize space. But if the United States, if the United States moves ahead, as it's been moving ahead now for years, 
we're going to be up there too. We're, we're going to respond in kind. And then you got to understand what kind of space weaponry ultimately will be involved. We go back to the Reagan administration's Star Wars program. That was predicated on orbiting battle platforms with laser weapons, hypervelocity guns, neutral particle beams, energized, and I've written a good deal about this too. In fact, I, I, um, uh, I wrote, wrote a book which really focuses on the nuclearization as well as the weaponization of space. It's titled uh, The Wrong Stuff. These weapons under the Star Wars program of Reagan would be energized by reactors, uh, actual nuclear reactors, little Fukushima's, on these battle platforms. In fact, James Abramson, who was the commander of the so-called Strategic Defense Initiative, the Star Wars program, in a speech he said, without reactors in orbit, we're going to have to have a long extension cord going back down to Earth, bringing up power for these high-energy weapons. Imagine, consider a shooting war with this kind of weaponry in space, with reactors up in space and particle beams and lasers. Uh, consider the fallout, the radioactive fallout. The, the, you know, we talk about space debris. There'd be so much space debris after a space war that uh, for, for listeners now who are kind of Trekkies who believe in, uh, which is, you know, uh, exploring the, the cosmos, we wouldn't be able to get up and out because of all that space debris for millennia after millennia. Uh, the word you use is insane. It is insane. And we have to go back to the intent and the, the letter of the law of the Outer Space Treaty to keep space for peaceful purposes, uh, not to turn the heavens into a war zone. Jackie, I saw you made a face there. Are you a part of the, the Trekkie contingent there? I am absolutely a Trekkie, and this is why this is fascinating and horrifying to me. Yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, Carl, I appreciate you raising the experience you have speaking with um, diplomats from different countries, such as uh, uh, Russia and China. And, and the fact that what you're hearing from them is a desire to expand and strengthen the treaty, I think is very telling. And, and, wh and what I want to ask is, how do you see... The uh, U.S. government's desire to expand uh, uh, into space and to weaponize space. How do you see that as part and parcel of the U as, as Washington's overall war drive um, uh, across the planet? Because it, it's hard not to see it as connection when we see that even under the, the coronavirus pandemic, um, the U.S. war machine sort of marches on. It continues to support um, its 800 some odd uh, uh, military bases. Some put that higher, um, uh, depending on what sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, criteria you may be using for a base or installation. But, um, you know, even the use of sanctions as well and all these sorts of things. I mean, it, it really just feels like um, the U.S. is trying to make space yet another a field of battle and, and yet another venue um, or another theater, if you will, to just sort of uh, 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 strengthen and further cement uh, U.S. military supremacy? Well, my background for over 50 years has been as an investigative reporter. And in investigative reporting, you, you often want to go to the documents. Uh, and uh, in fact, the Covert Action magazine piece notes this. Uh, my books, Weapons in Space and the Wrong Stuff, relates all this. 
You go to the documents. Before there was a space force, the U.S. military had a space command. Uh, and uh, there was, I mean, you wouldn't believe this document. Uh, it's online, too. Uh, either link it up with some of my writing or just go separately for to Vision for 2020. Again, Vision for 2020 was put out by the U.S. Space Command. And uh, again, before Trump talked about the U.S. dominating space here, and this was almost 25 years ago, the Space Command talks about how we have to have full-spectrum dominance. We have to weaponize space. And consider, consider this declaration to protect U.S. interests and investment, to protect U.S interests and investment. I mean, you couldn't make that stuff up. And here it is, the U.S. government's, at that point, space military arm, uh, speaking of, uh, uh, well, it's, it, it's, it's uh, and vision for 2020 involved the year 2020 last year. And that now in 2021 is what the U.S. is, uh, is pushing ahead with. Uh, uh, it, it, again, it, 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 it must be stopped for uh, really, uh, it's a life and death issue. And if it's not stopped now, if it's not stopped the next few years, uh, if the Paros Treaty isn't enacted, uh, if, uh, if, well, space is weaponized, and it, uh, again, Russia and China will meet the U.S. in kind, but there'll be other nations up there, India and Pakistan and uh, on and on. And, uh, what was supposed to be a uh, a peaceful preserve for all mankind, space, the heavens, will be turned into a, a, a battle zone. So it's imperative, it's critical that people stand up now in the United States and all around the world to keep space for peace. And it's not just, you know, the, the weaponization of space, but it's also the private profiteering off of the weaponization of space, you know, isn't it as we're seeing, you know, corporations and 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 rich people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Richard Branson, you know, ignoring UN's uh, the UN's outer space and moon treaties. And, you know, they're talking about profiteering off of space travel and and extracting uh, resources from planetary bodies. But really, this is just a, a, a profiteering grab for private corporations also as much as it is an existential threat to mankind. Absolutely. I mean, so much of the U.S. space program has been privatized. Uh, indeed, just a few days ago, there was a very, very important story uh, on Sputnik. Uh, I'm just reading the headline. Russia's space chief warns Pentagon may use Musk's terraform Mars idea to deploy nuclear weapons. That's the headline of this piece, uh, August 29th. You can get it online. And what's being referred to is Elon Musk has this scheme where he would, uh, he's been uh, pushing this since 2015. In fact, if you go to the uh, his website, you'll see they're selling a T-shirt. says Nuke Mars. He has this scheme to make Mars habitable, habitable by detonating, hold your breath, 10,000, 10,000 nuclear weapons over the poles of Mars. And somehow that's going to cause uh, global warming for Mars and make Mars, I mean, it's, it's 
speaking of insanity, more habitable, will also make Mars radioactive. And uh, Musk and Bezos, uh, they have they have at this point a very very close relationship uh, with the with the U.S. military, with the Pentagon, uh, and. Uh, the, we're not just talking about actually battle platforms, the Star Wars scheme, but there's been discussions of a of a U.S. military base on the moon. Uh, then, of course, uh, uh, with this well, what's called dual use, where NASA, which was set up in 57, 1957, ostensibly as a civilian agency, has been working very closely through the decades with the military with various dual use projects. Uh, this talk of uh, of uh, NASA uh, working with with entrepreneurs uh, creating settlements on Mars uh, ain't going to be just a, a military base on the moon or more than one. Uh, the military would be part of that uh, that scheme too. So. Uh, again, go to go back to the Outer Space Treaty, this visionary, this landmark treaty, saying no war in space. I mean, it's horrible enough that through the millennia there's been so much war on the surface of the Earth. Let's not bring war to uh, to space. Not let, let's not waste billions upon trillions of uh, in U.S. dollars on space warfare. Let's not endanger life on Earth. By having uh, warfare overhead, which will include, uh, uh, I also did a TV documentary a while back. Uh, it's called Nukes in Space: The Weaponization and Nuclearization of the Heavens. Uh, the two go together: nukes in space and weapons in space. We all, as I say, we have to stand up and stop this. And it, the key is grassroots action, I believe, because to count on the Biden administration to do anything about it uh, ain't going to happen. There are Democrats in the U.S. Congress, some excellent Democrats in U.S. US Congress, who voted against this, this Space Force scheme. Uh, but again, folks should connect with the global network against weapons and nuclear power in space and join in their, in their various activities, uh, including Space for Peace Week. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Carl, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the Chicano Moratorium on the Vietnam War, marking the 51st anniversary of that march. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Ernesto Ayala of La Raza Unida and Telejaguar Chicano Media. Ernesto, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Ernesto, this week marked the 51st anniversary of the National Chicano Moratorium Against the Vietnam War March, which saw 20,000 demonstrators marching through East Los Angeles um, to resist 
the war. And this was something that was met with uh, serious police violence. And it just really seems like a a, a part of anti-war history in the U.S. that isn't really talked about that much. And I think I should also note that at that time, this was the largest gathering of Mexican-American demonstrators in U.S. history. And so I was hoping you could tell us some more uh, uh, about the march, Ernesto, and how you see it as situated not only within sort of uh, uh, U.S. history, but for the history of uh, the Chicano people in general. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the Chicano March term of 1970, it was one of many. There was uh, a few before, but there were uh, throughout, you know, uh, the Southwest, we call us land. And, um, you know, the, the you know, sentiment, <clears throat> anti-war sentiment, especially among uh, colonized people, uh, Chicanos, Africans, Natives, uh, uh, Puerto Rican, Boricuas, that we're seeing, you know, so many uh, of our young men, uh, mainly young men, coming back in body bags when the issues or the people causing us problems are not, we're not in Vietnam. You know, they're over here, you know. Um, so, you know, that became a, a big thing for, for the Chicano community. Like, you know, what we, we, we suffer racism, you know, discrimination, uh, poverty, uh, uh, low wages, exploitation, all these things, and, you know, historical land theft. And yet we're being told to go and, and give our lives or take lives of other people that we have absolutely no idea who they are because somehow they're our enemies and we have to go fight them. Uh, so, you know, seeing all that, you know, and seeing how, you know, we were coming back, back uh, I believe it was uh, 20% of casualties were, were strictly Chicanos uh, coming back in body bags over this war that, that we had nothing to do with, you know, kind of juxtaposed these things, you know, so... The, the march became a, a, a very anti-colonial, uh, or it developed in, in a very anti-colonial uh, sentiment, you know. Uh, and if you see like some of the the, the footage and the you know the, the pictures, signs that, that people had, you know, it was very very uh, uh, it was that you know like the signs were you know our war is here in the barrios, not in Vietnam, you know, Viva Aslan Libre, you know, which means land live free Aslan with the land. Uh, Chicano power, Chicana power, Indians of all tribes, you know, um, uniting together. Uh, and, and, and so, it, you know, pictures of Che Guevara, you know, people shouting in favor of, of the Vietnamese people, including war veterans, Chicano war veterans shouting in favor of the, of the Vietnamese resistance. Uh, so, you know, that, that was a sentiment, you know, and so it was the largest, uh, gathering of, of non-white people against the, the war in Vietnam and, um, very peaceful. Uh, entire families came out, which was one of the things, you know, my father was there and, and other people from, from La Raza Unida party that I know and were there. So from the story that I've heard from that they have told us, you know, is, you know, that the community came out and, um, it was a very peaceful demonstration. Uh, there's even this picture of a, of a couple that just got married as they walked out and they joined the, the demonstration. And, um, so that was a sentiment, you know, and, and they marched from a park called Atlantic Park. And down Whittier Boulevard, uh, the famous Whittier Boulevard, and into another park that at that time was called Laguna Park. There was performances, speeches, all that. And then that's when the sheriffs, you know, decided that they felt they needed to clear out the the, the crowd. So um, they went in full force, swinging batons and shooting tear gas, uh, gassing the, the women and children, beating the men, the people, or beating the women as well. Uh, the people mounted a resistance, you know, that uh, pushed them back for a bit. But ultimately, you know, people, I mean, what can fists, rocks, and sticks do against, you know, 
shotguns, tear gas, and batons and, and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, the, the police overpowered the people. Uh, and the result of that was that there was two young men, Lynn Ward and Angel Diaz, who, who died basically in hand-to-hand combat with the police, defending the, the people. And then you have the journalist, Ruben Salazar, uh, who, he was a journalist. He used to write for the LA Times, uh, and he headed Channel 34, which is a big over here in Los Angeles, uh, KMEX. He was uh, the chair of that. Uh, Ruben Salazar had been being spied on. He wasn't a revolutionary or a leader or anything like that, but he was, you know, writing about the, the conditions of Chicanos, you know, and, and Chicanos Mexicans. Uh, so he was being followed. He was being spied on. Like there's a whole documentary about how how he was uh, being spied on by the FBI and the LAPD. But uh, yeah, he he was murdered. He he went into uh, there was a bar there on Whittier Boulevard. He went into you know get out of the sun because it gets very hot over here in the summer um, with his crew, his his uh, TV crew, and um, they go in the, they go in there. They're having a you know a drink to cool off and stuff, and the sheriff's just barged. You know, for some reason, you know, they say they just did it. They didn't have no, supposedly no, no idea he was there. They go into the 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 bar, the Silver Dollar Bar, bar was called, and from the entrance, uh, one of the sheriffs points a tear gas can or tear gas, uh, whatever you call it, gun, at directly at Ruben Salazar and shoots him in the head with a with a tear gas canister, with a one foot long tear gas canister, and, and he died. So. Uh, these three people became martyrs of, of the Chicano movement, Chicano people, and you know there was an uprising uh, in East LA and other other uh, wherever there was you know barrios throughout uh, the Southwest. After that, you know, so it um, the demonstration and the whole sentiment of it, you know, went far beyond civil rights. You know, it, it went towards people, you know, seeing that you know we we needed what position we had in society, and that it went far beyond that. That the land was taken from us, you know, and, and that's the that's the whole reason we're in this in this rut in the first place, you know, so it, it really, it really, you know, made people think about that, you know, and made people think if, if we demonstrate peacefully, you know, we weren't attacking, you know, people weren't attacking the police and people weren't, you know, uh, doing anything destructive. If we demonstrate in this way and, and the police respond with such brutal force, then, you know, who are we really to the United States? Who are we really to, to uh, you know, America, quote unquote America? So from that, you know, we had, you know, a lot of organizations develop, you know, uh, and understand more, you know, who we are and what we're supposed to do. You know, La Raza the Party, which I belong to, uh, you know, you had the Brown Berets, you had the August 29th movement, uh, which came out of the Labor Committee of La Raza the Party, uh, all these other organizations, you know, and then they started, you know, developing ideology and, and all this stuff, uh, which was more uh, a revolutionary nationalist ideologies, you know, to that understood that, you know, we, we are a colonized people and our fight is for the land. You know, so it became this, this historic day which has only been upheld since nineteen seventy because of the people themselves. You know, there there's you know, the the city, obviously, the state, you know, the government, nobody no politician. Uh, I mean there's politicians every now and then that probably say something in support, but then you know, they're not the ones that have upheld the day. You know, the days are completely grassroots uh, a holiday, Chicano holiday that is supported and people, you know, every year come from, from throughout the Southwest or wherever there's Chicanos uh, to, to East LA to march down Whittier Boulevard. So it's become this unifying uh, and very symbolic day, you know, because it became a day, you know, where we had people die, die just for being Chicanos basically, you know, so yeah. And, and, and again, you know, it's a very, the one of the things that, that uh, impresses me so much is that, you know, I've, uh, I grew up 
because I grew up in La Raza Unida Party, so I grew up going to these events every single year since the day I was, well, not the day, since uh, the year I was born. And yeah, it's just been, you know, people from the community, uh, organizations from the community that organize it every single year without uh, the help of, of any agency, any government uh, agency, any politician, anything. You know, people just say, this is our day. This is the day, you know, where, where we shout out to the skies, you know, our, our, what we actually feel, you know, because as Chicanos, we're, we're, we're a growing majority in many parts of the country, particularly in the Southwest. And in California and Texas specifically, you know, but it, you know, the, the American society, American media basically erases us from the narrative. You know, we're, we're basically, we're, we're, we're not anywhere. And the only time we, we see us ourselves on, on, on TV or anything is, um, you know, when they portray a, a, a criminal or, or just someone in the background, uh, gardening or something like that, you know, so. On this day, we, 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 we let it all out, you know, and we, we shout Chicano power, we shout Viva Aslan Libre, you know, uh, which, you know, again means free Aslan, because we are calling for the for the liberation of the land, which was stolen from us, which, you know, by a U.S. invasion. And we and we do recognize that on this day, you know, that the United States essentially is a, a foreign occupier here in the Southwest, here in Aslan, in these indigenous lands, in these lands that were, that were uh, taken from Mexico. Um, so... Yeah, it's a very anti-imperialist, very anti-colonial uh, sentiment on that day, which we always uphold, and and we always, you know, try to have people not forget that, you know, because I think that's very important for us uh, uh, to remember that, you know, because that informs, us, you know, who we are. Absolutely, and I think it's so important that you know this was a Chicano movement against uh, the Vietnam War. I think clearly making a connection from what you're saying, Ernesto, between the racism inside the U.S. and how that is central to imperialism abroad. Well, we want to thank you so much, Ernesto, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, August 30th, 2021. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. They can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But they can also hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, hopefully later this week, (laughs) at BAM Necessary. Our shows can be downloaded on iTunes, where 
there, we would very much appreciate a good rating. They can hear us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcast platforms. They can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and on their radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today. You can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, President Joe Biden has declared a disaster in the state of Louisiana <clears throat> after Hurricane Ida made landfall uh, this past weekend uh, with one million people inside the state losing power as a result. That's one million people. And Hurricane Ida um, actually made landfall on the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, which, as people may remember, uh, resulted in the deaths of more than 1,800 people. An absolute uh, humanitarian disaster uh, facilitated by the the racist presidency of um, George W. Bush, who, I think I should point out, actually refused uh, help from medical brigades from Cuba, who were all sitting ready to come to the U.S. and help. But, of course, you can't let the socialists come and do a good thing here in the beating heart of world imperialism. Oh, no. uh, the storm winds uh, were topping out at 100 miles per hour. And, you know, I have to say that th- the failure here on the part of the city is incredible. I mean, the 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 mayor of New Orleans basically said there was no time to uh have like an organized emergency uh, uh, evacuation and all these sorts of things. Uh, That's Latoya Cantrell, who's the mayor of New Orleans. And also uh, Colin Arnold, who directs the New Orleans Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness, basically told the people of New Orleans that the first 72 hours uh, after the storm, they're basically on their own. He said, quote, the first 72 is on you. The first three days of this will be difficult for first responders to get to you. So, I mean, you know, here again, the people of New Orleans just being failed on so many levels and its communities like that will continue to be battered by the increasing impacts of climate catastrophe. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Monica Cruz, a labor reporter with Breakthrough News. Monica, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Always happy to join the show. Absolutely. And we're always happy to have you on, Monica. And, you know, there's a couple of uh, important developments uh, amongst workers here in the U.S., Monica, that I wanted to touch on to begin the hour today. I mean, first, I wanted to um, talk about this issue of Prop 22 in California, where a California uh, Superior Court judge actually ruled Proposition 22 unconstitutional. And this is very significant for uh, uh, gig workers uh, and with companies like Lyft, uh, DoorDash and Uber. And so, Monica, I was hoping you could sort of help us understand just what is uh, Proposition 22 and what do you see uh, as the impact of this ruling? Definitely. So Proposition 22 was essentially a bill created by these very same gig companies um, that you mentioned, by Uber and Lyft and DoorDash. 
these uh, multinational, uh, multi-billionaire corporations uh, poured in $200 million um, to push forward this uh, bill and to uh, advertise it um, in a way that basically trying to convince uh, these gig workers that Prop 22 would be on their side. But what Prop 22 essentially did was um, repeal um, a previous um, state law in California that gave gig workers um, rights like any full-time um, employees would have um, a right to health care benefits, a right to paid time off, um, and other basic things that they are denied. And what Prop 22 essentially does, uh, or essentially did, was misclassify these workers um, by a change their employment status um, from full-time employees to independent contractors. So um, it prohibited gig workers from unionizing, and um, just like the whole host of just basic workers' rights that I mentioned, um, things from a livable hourly wage to benefits like this paid sick leave and health insurance were completely taken away from workers in California. And I mean, just the the length to which these corporations went to, to um, again, try to convince workers that Prop 22 was legislation that would help improve their lives um, was just really incredible. I mean, um, I interviewed um, some Uber drivers um, last year in the fall when this uh, was being pushed forward in this huge um, advertising campaign. And um, it there were there was like this whole list of like just basically little infographics that um, Uber drivers would um, see as soon as they open up their app, and they had to like click through like this little slideshow with all of these reasons why Prop Twenty Two um, would uh, help improve their work conditions and would be uh, legislation that would just essentially be for them. Um, but it was the total opposite of that. So I think um, it's definitely um, a, a victory for gig drivers across the state of California to see um, this proposition be struck down. You know, it is a victory that Prop 22 was struck down, but I'm a little bit concerned about, I guess, the the reasoning for the judge's ruling because the, the court didn't take an issue with the classification of workers as contractors and the fact that Prop 22 basically allows uh, corporations, you know, like Amazon and and these, you know, ride uh, sharing uh, organizations or or companies and uh, delivery companies to basically exploit their workers. That that's all all it is. They ruled uh, against Prop 22 because because of a stipul- a stipulation in the law that can only be amended by the California legislature with a seven eighths majority for it to be legally valid. So that because they couldn't like separate that stipulation from the entire law, they had to sep- they had to strike the whole thing down. What do you think that means going forward in the fight against Prop 22 to get rid of it entirely? Because even as the legal battle is playing out for the future of Prop 22, gig workers are still classified as independent contractors. Their classification hasn't changed, Monica. No, you're exactly right. And I think that's why it really is beyond this court ruling um, when it comes to what these gig workers um, need to be doing to to get the rights that they deserve and to get the right to be recognized um, as full-time employees. Um, Because also just an important, I think, clarification um, that's so much a part of this propaganda machine 
that Uber and Lyft and all these other gig economy giants have been pushing forward is that these are just part-time jobs. You know, these are just jobs um, for folks who, you know, need an extra uh, gig to make ends meet. But uh, when we look at the reality of the situation, um, so many of these workers are relying on these app-based um, companies to to make to make all of their income. So um, one thing that uh, I think uh, is a really incredible example of the way that these gig workers have been able to organize um, is a group called Rideshare, Rideshare Drivers United um, that actually um, back in July were able to push forward um, a national um, strike across um, over a dozen cities where um, they were able to, for 24 hours, um, just completely shut down service um, to draw attention to the impact of Prop 22 um, to demand fair wages and treatment and also garner support for the PRO Act, um, which would um, really also change the game for gig workers um, and allow them the right to unionize and also um, really um, just strike down this idea of uh, independent contractor status um, overall. Because if we're really going to talk about what an independent contractor is, that is someone with a particular skill set that a company contracts or any sort of manager will contract out for a very particular project for a particular time frame. Rider, uh, rideshare drivers for Uber and DoorDash and Lyft, they are not independent contractors. The totality of these uh, of the business models of these companies relies on these workers. So that is not an independent contractor. That Those are employees. So um, I think it really just ties back to um, something that uh, I think is bringing a lot of unity in the labor movement and, and that is incredibly important for anyone who cares about workers' rights in this country to be speaking on and mobilizing on wherever they can, and that's in pushing forward the PRO Act. Um, which would allow um, these uh, rideshare workers, um, these gig economy workers, whatever you may call them, to be able to be recognized as employees and also to be able to um, unionize. And it would remove so many of the roadblocks um, for workers across all sectors um, to be able to form unions. Yeah. And, you know, this this notion of an independent contractor, I think, is important. And I'm glad that, that you spent some time sort of breaking that down, Monica, because like we're saying, I mean, it's just obviously being used as an end run around workers' rights and trying to uh, uh, try to preemptively, I think, stop workers from uh, actually organizing. And, you know, just thinking about how people we call gig workers or, or rideshare drivers or folks like that. And, and what and what they've really meant, particularly in the last year or so under the pandemic with, you know, more people than usual, you know, ordering food and groceries and things like that. I mean, all of these companies have just raked in incredible profits um, as a result of um, their use, uh, given the, the restrictions of the coronavirus. But that hasn't been reflected in the pay or the treatment of uh, the people uh, who are independent contractors. And and, and I think you made a, a, a mention um, a little earlier about 
like the propaganda, because I feel like what we what we always hear from these countries, you know, when they, you know, advertise and try to get people to work for them, they always say, oh, well, you can make your own hours and and, and be your own boss. And, you know, it, it, it's uh, sort of framed as this almost like uh, like independence sort of thing. It's like, oh, well, you can just come and be free and just make all the money you want. But of course, that doesn't um, tell the whole story. And so, you know, uh, uh, the 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 gig economy is something that where the, the, the service is set up to be convenient, but that convenience comes at a considerable cost to the people actually providing the service. All while uh, the corporations who don't have to drive anybody anywhere and don't have to drop off any food just get to rake in the bread. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I mean, what what this this weird phenomenon that we now see with um, th- this rise of the gig economy is that folks are no longer, you know, reporting to a, a manager or a shift lead, right? They're they're reporting to an app, and there are. You know, reports that I've heard um, talking to gig workers, um, you know, from all different companies over the past um, year or so of doing this labor reporting with Breakthrough News is um, th- this new issue, like this just completely uh, just strange and weird phenomenon that we see of folks just literally getting fired by the app. Like I was speaking to a DoorDash driver who was literally fired from the app because supposedly he he didn't um, deliver the food like in quick enough time. And he just gets a notification, you know, saying, uh, well, you're fired now. So it's just it just really goes to show um, the ways that uh, that late stage capitalism, which I, I believe we are living in right now, commodifies everything that we do every uh, workers uh, in the gig economy are no longer working on an hourly basis every single minute that they work is being monitored and watched and commodified and i think it also goes to show the ways that the system is scrambling to reconcile its own contradictions right we're seeing multiple crises um face our economy, right? Um, there's this inevitable, you know, like every 10 years or so, oh yeah, it, it's just a thing that we have to accept in the market-based economy that, uh, that there will be a crash, you know, every decade or so, right? And with the pandemic, you know, we've seen um, so much struggle um, facing the working class of this country, but at the same time, um, we're seeing the, the trillionaire class um, go away like bandits. Um, make upwards of a trillion dollars while millions of workers um, are struggling to pay their rent, pay their bills. So it it seems to me what I kind of make of this whole, um, this uh, growth of the gig economy is just like the, the upper echelons of the society, the people who, who own the means of production, who own um, these large sectors of every industry um, that determines our lives, our livelihoods, you know, they're trying to figure out, hmm, like, how can we continue to make sure that working class people make just enough money to survive and also figure out a way to um, even pit workers against each other? I think we saw this a lot during the pandemic where, you know, there's certain sectors of um, the working class who could, you know, uh, through 
due to just their job responsibilities, what their jobs look like, who could, you know, afford to, to stay at home and um, and not go to the office every day, who could afford, you know, to use um, a DoorDash or, you know, an Amazon Prime or, you know, the Amazon, you know, Whole Foods delivery and all of that to get what they needed and, you know, to, to stay safe in a time where we're being told, you know, we need to stay safe um, by staying indoors. And then um, there were um, the most suppressed segments of our class um, that had no choice but to go to work. Um, the restaurant workers, the transportation workers, um, the gig economy workers, just like we're dealing with here in California with Prop 22, right? So I think it's just really insidious um, the ways that um, certain sectors of our class are just continuing to be hyper-exploited. And I think um, that's why I'll call again for the importance of the PRO Act, um, the importance of this um, incredible labor reform bill, um, the most sweeping labor reform bill in this country's history that would end right-to-work laws, that would streamline the National Labor Relations Board process for creating unions that would expand the criteria for what's considered to be um, an unfair labor practice and really um, be able to hold um, these uh, big bosses, these big corporations, um, you know, really put uh, their feet to the fire and create um, uh, just a stronger system of accountability and tip the scale more um, in favor of empowering workers in their workplaces, um, whether that be um, through an at-base job or um, in the traditional workplace, right? So I think um, that's really why um, workers of this country need to really rally and come together um, on the PRO Act and on every single um, sort of action um, of solidarity that they can push forward um, with gig economy workers in this particular situation and overall from the UMWA miners in Brooklyn, Alabama and uh, in their fifth month of striking or the Nabisco workers uh, on strike in five different cities right now. This is um, the kind of uh, labor movement that we need to be building, and we see it resurging in so many ways. That was a very general, open-ended answer to that question, but um, this is really what it comes down to. Definitely. Well, we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Splendid in Washington, D.C., but we will be back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Monica Cruz. And we have a caller on the line here. Alex, tell us what's on your mind. Hey, y'all. Um, I guess I just want to talk about, like, you were talking about New Orleans at the top of the hour. Um, and I just want to see what you thought about the idea that the, under the capitalist system and with the relations of production we have, where the ruling class essentially determines the, the nature of our, of our government, even if the political will existed to do something you know, preventative or, or meaningful in response to this crisis or you know, in, in preventing natural disasters that they wouldn't even be able to do it. They, we're not organized in a way 
like, say, Cuba, where they've built these emergency shelters and they, they already have the resources to, to bus people to places. If, if, we, if they wanted to do that here, I feel like essentially they'd, they'd have to be begging companies to do it. And there's nothing to keep them in check to make them do it. And I'm just wondering if you think that's kind of like a, a, a useful, I don't know, point of, point of inflection. And, and same, same could go for China as far as how they re, uh, responded to COVID, where they essentially told businesses what to do. Whereas here, we're just, we're essentially, our, our ruling class, the, the politicians are essentially reduced to begging and, and not much else because they don't express any real power over the ruling class. And it's really the inverse. All right. Uh, thank you. Well, thank you, Alex. I appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. And, and you make an excellent point. And I think you're correct that the capitalist mode of production would make uh, uh, such a thing uh, very difficult, even if the political will was there. And I'm so glad you brought up Cuba because Cuba has even under a, a criminal unilateral 60 year blockade directed by the most powerful government on the planet. Their hurricane preparedness is incredible. I mean, they've basically perfected it. And the, the reason why is basically by using common sense. They recognize that they're an island in the Caribbean and they're always going to um, encounter a hurricane season. So they're sort of always preparing for it. And they have things in place to really uh, protect people uh, 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 from, from the worst aspects of it. And as a result, they tend to have very few deaths when there are hurricanes. And so that is a direct result of that country's uh, 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 socialist mode of production. But we don't hear about that sort of thing here in the United States. All we ever hear about is the supposed um, inefficiency of socialism and the, the, the supposed incompetence and corruption of socialist leadership, whether it be in Cuba or Venezuela or Nicaragua or whatever and what have you. And so I just think we should be clear that, I mean, literally, this system keeps us from having uh, life-saving resources at our disposal. Now, you compare what how Cuba prepares for a hurricane with um, this New Orleans official saying, hey, for three days, we can't do nothing for you. Literally. Like, that That was, you know, th- that to me is completely insane. But Jackie Lukeman, I'm curious your thoughts. I, I'm recalling the picture from Katrina a few days before. You know, the, the levees actually broke or a day or two uh, from in New Orleans where the, the parking lot of school buses were was underwater. Right. Well, it wasn't underwater, but it was flooded. But there was a question of, well, wait a minute. Why couldn't the city get those school bus drivers to evacuate people who couldn't afford to leave New Orleans? Why couldn't? But then. When you think about it, okay, what if the city had been able to do that? Then where would the city have been able to take people? Because you're talking about uh, a city that didn't have places like emergency uh, emergency shelters for people to go that the city paid for, that the state paid for. Um, and, And New Orleans and the Gulf region is subjected to the same hurricanes that Cuba. And a lot of Caribbean islands are subjected to. So when we when we look at a situation like that in New Orleans and and I I immediately when you when you brought uh, to attention, Sean, that this is the anniversary of 
Katrina. I immediately thought of that picture of all of those school buses just sitting there empty. And the city had ample time to marshal those human resources to get folks in those buses, driving them, getting people out of the way of the hurricane and the flood. But then the question is to where? Mm -hmm. Because then you'd have to convince a bunch of privately owned hotels, especially in New Orleans, the the ones on Canal Street, the tourist uh, attractions, they weren't going to open their doors to poor folks in, in New Orleans. You know, then so so all of all along this capitalist system, there are possibilities. But then whenever you continue to ask the question, OK, if we can get this done, then where do we take people? And it's always the where it seems like it's always the where and the how that runs us into the wall of capitalism in this country that literally cost people's lives. And and I'm honestly wondering when people in this country are going to rise up against this, because I can't see this continuing to happen, Monica, without people in this country just throwing up their hands and saying, wait a minute, what are we paying taxes for? If we never get anything in, in the way of support that actually saves our lives. I think you're you're exactly right. And I think that's just a fantastic question to pose. And the first thing I thought of was just like, what kind of democracy do we live in when there's a dictatorship of capital, when it's it's capital that determines every single aspect of our lives? And uh, just thinking of what's happening in New Orleans right now and, and thinking about, you know, um, when I was, I think I was like 11 when Hurricane Katrina hit. And I just remember opening up um, the, the daily newspaper I would read all the time as like a little kid growing up in North Jersey is the record and just being totally like stunned by these photos of the destruction and understanding as well that well, not then understanding, but growing up and now coming to understand that who is it that experiences the brunt of climate change and this climate disaster? It's workers. One thing that we've seen um, in addition to um, this rise in in hurricanes and tropical storms and wildfires um, and also um, this um, excessive heat that we've these heat waves, um, the way that we're seeing, um, you know, out in San Jose, California, um, Burger King workers um, walking out to protest the extreme temperatures, um, restaurant management, you know, refusing um, to fix the AC, um, how we're seeing um, da- these dangerous heat waves um, impact some of the most exploited workers, which are farm workers. Um, a-, a study by the University of Washington talking about how the average numbers uh, number of days um, that farm workers are spending in unsafe conditions um, ha- will double in 30 years um, and triple by the end of this century. And um, the way that there are just really just zero um, safeguards for um, for health, um, there are zero any, any kind of like just safety regulations when it comes to excessive heat in most states. Um, and the way that uh, the people who literally feed this country are toiling um, under uh, some of the worst conditions that are being, again, exacerbated by climate destruction that's being driven by who? 
Number one, who is the biggest polluter on the planet? It's the U.S. military. Number two, um, these oil and mining extractive energy corporations that are irresponsibly dumping millions of gallons of oil in our in um, this beautiful planet's waters that that have been poisoning our soil, our air, our water in every single way possible for decades now, completely unmitigated. And I think it all ties back to um, the point that was being made in that question, that this system is completely incapable uh, of coming up with any way to mitigate the effects of climate change, with coming up with any solution that will meet the scale of the problem that this system has created itself. So um, we look to um, places like Cuba, and I really appreciate y'all um, chiming in to, to explain um, the, the just incredible organization um, that they've been able to manage. This tiny island um, in the middle of the Caribbean, they have a realistic understanding that climate disaster happens even regardless of climate change and climate destruction that is exacerbating the environmental disasters and the frequency and severity of them, that these things happen and how do we prepare? And that is, that is the primary feature of a system that places the value of human lives over the value of capital, over the value of sheer profit. And that's why um, it's going to take a, a, a fight. Um, I hate to be corny, but by any means necessary, you know, to, to really change this system and to build something completely different, um, a system that puts value in taking care of our communities and taking care of the planet over just taking care of the ultra-rich corporations that destroy our lives in every way they can every day. Yeah, and that's a part of the tragedy of climate change is that, you know, uh, the countries, the major countries like U.S. is, is driving uh, so much of the pollution and things like that. And it's global south countries who uh, really bear the br- brunt of it. But we have another caller on the line here. Nate, tell us what's on your mind. Hey, everyone. Uh, first off, I just wanted to say uh, free the By Any Means Necessary YouTube channel. Um, <laughs> really enjoy, you know, not only your, your as political analysis, but also the political analysis that's always in the live chat. So. Um, hopefully that gets sorted out soon. And also on the, on the topic of New Orleans and the capitalist response to this uh, latest hurricane disaster, unfortunately, there is one part of the capitalist system that's working overtime on this. I'm going to refer you to a tweet from the New Orleans Pig Department 40 minutes ago. NOPD has deployed anti-looting teams across the city in order to protect our citizens' property as we continue the recovery process. Looting will not be tolerated, and we encourage everyone to be good neighbors and say something when you see something, accompanied by a big picture of handcuffs that says, looting is a state felony, you will be arrested. This just, it just makes my blood boil. I'm so, I'm so angry to see this, and I'm sure you all have some choice words to say about it as well. So um, just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, thanks a lot, Nate. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. And, and just so you know, um, but we appreciate you saying that about our YouTube page. I mean, hopefully it comes back pretty soon. But um, our chat has somewhat reconstituted uh, itself on our Facebook stream. So if you go to the official uh, Sputnik uh, News Facebook page every day uh, at 3 p.m. 
uh, the there will be a video stream there with some of our friends from the chat in there holding it down as always they will. So that's for anybody who wants to, uh, you know, see me and Jackie's smiling faces and see me sort of waving my arms around wildly as I'm trying desperately no, to no, make a, a halfway coherent point. Very coordinated and synchronized. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but no, um, you know, it's no surprise that the New Orleans Police Department tweets that. And that just, I think, drives home our point because you're telling people that you can't so much as say hello to them for three days after this storm, which people are saying are even worse than Katrina, which killed almost 2000 people over, <clears throat> excuse me, overwhelmingly impacting um, the uh, uh, poor and working class and black folks there in New Orleans a very black city with a deep history and culture. And um, this is also a big part of uh, what made New Orleans an experiment because a lot of those uh, project buildings that didn't actually take on a lot of damage, you know, the city voted unanimously to tear them down and put in these new mixed income, uh, quote unquote, units and all of that. Uh, they called it decentralizing poverty when all that means is pushing poor people out. Uh, you know, it's just like how we have in New Orleans now. There really are no more public schools it's like completely charter and things like that. So, I mean, New Orleans has just been like a laboratory for a number of things. And the um, Hurricane Katrina was used as a pretense for uh, so much of it. And, you know, so what you you know, when, when 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 they post things like that, what you're telling the people and I know we've been saying New Orleans isn't it true, but th this is you know true for a lot of parts of Louisiana, the where, where the and the Gulf Coast, because you know a Mississippi is feeling some aspects of this as well. But what you're telling people is that you know somehow we can't help you for three days. We can't see to it that you have food. We can't see to it that you have clean water. We can't see to it that you have electricity. We can't see to it that you have any kind of medical care that you need. But we have cops that will shoot you in your behind for quote unquote looting. And we and we all know what this is about. This is a reference to Katrina. We all saw, you know, what happened back then and the sort of obviously racist way that quote unquote looting was being talked about. People going in stores, you know, taking food and being called quote unquote looters. I mean, it's ridiculous. But you know, we're supposed to wag our finger at some people who who made off with the TV. Who cares? This is a disaster. You see what I mean? But that is just so emblematic and illustrative of a capitalist society that values property over human life. So literally they saying, if you are going to bring some harm to property, our police force, the armed bodies of the state will bring their force down upon you. But when it comes to things that will actually keep you alive and healthy in the aftermath of this uh, uh, disaster, we ain't got nothing for you. Mm -hmm. uh, Monica Cruz, your thoughts? I mean, I just, what else is there to say, really? I think what a, a perfect example, um, as you said, of what this system creates. And just the way that this system has no other way, no other way to address these contradictions, to address um, this poverty, but by what? Police militarization, um, further criminalization of impoverished communities, right? Uh, again, just throw back to Katrina. I mean, who can get those images out of their minds of these cops pointing their guns 
at um, folks just, I mean, just trying to get water, just trying to get basic necessities. And the way that people were were shot and killed in the aftermath, I I don't think those numbers have ever even been confirmed. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's never even been confirmed. The number of victims of uh, of these um, state shootings um, against these people just trying to uh, find somewhere to go, um, something to to feed their children, um, a, a, a sip of water in the aftermath of this hurricane, and just the way that the system forces all of its problems onto the individual, right? The fact that, you know, evacuations is just something that is completely just up to individual people and families to deal with on their own. And then it's, it becomes this question after every disaster, um, no matter where you go, um, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you evacuate? Because we didn't have the money to, because we don't have a car. Because there is nowhere to go. So the best that they can offer people is to tell them to get into the most whatever centralized part of your home, the the most protected, uh, I don't know, whatever part of your home. I forget the word that was used um, in this tweet by the mayor. But, you know, to, to just get in the safest place in your home and just be prepared to hunker down for up to three days. I mean, we're talking about we're still in the middle of a global pandemic. We're, we're talking about we still have millions of people out of work um, in, in states um, like Louisiana, unemployment benefits being prematurely, um, the, the extra uh, unemployment benefit being prematurely taken away. So we are t- we're talking about people living um, in this in this particular example, one of the poorest states in this country and the, the brunt of the responsibility is put on individuals, yet we have all the ability, all of the capital in the center of world of global capital here in the U.S. empire. There is no reason why every single resident um, of New Orleans cannot, couldn't have been evacuated and could not have been placed in one of the, I don't know, 17 million empty homes in this entire yeah, definitely. And I also want to uh, point out not only police violence uh, taking place uh, during the hurricane or in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, you also had, you know, Blackwater, these like these private military companies, racist vigilante violence and um, all of that. And so that there's so much of that that just, you know, it, it's been reported on, but it's kind of been swept under the rug in terms of part of the overall narrative of Katrina and just shows, I think, again, the deeply racist nature of how that played out and who it impacted. But we're going to Move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Monica Cruz is here. And you know, Monica, a part of the sickness of the capitalist system is that the exploitation that is not an accident of the system, but is in reality central 
to its uh, operation is always visited most sharply upon the very workers who generate the wealth that are that is hoarded by the ruling class and by the wealthy elite. And so it's like this system does everything it can to crush poor working and oppressed people because you can't generate super profits and treat people like human beings at the very same time under this system. You have to do one or the other. And to treat people as human, to provide the things that not only that they need, but that this country in particular is more than capable of providing. To do that is to go against the interests of capital, right? And it's just like with the uh, eviction moratorium being lifted um, days before it was set to expire. Well, not days, uh, I think uh, some uh, weeks, a month or so was left before uh, it would have expired. And we're talking about 7 million renting households that have been behind on rent and with folks facing eviction. We're talking about millions of people, millions of children under risk of being put out on the street. And why? Because the wealthiest nation in the history of nations has chosen to put them at that risk because, you know, you can't turn a buck if you house everybody. You can't turn a buck if you feed everybody. You can't turn a buck if you give everybody the health care that they need. So it's just, uh, I often say this, just the, 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 the incredible bitter cruelty of this system seemingly knows no bounds and knows no depths. But the beautiful part of it, Monica, is how workers fight back. And, you know, I'm thinking specifically of the Nabisco workers strike in places like Portland. I mean, earlier this month, about 200 Nabisco employees at uh, the bakery in North Portland uh, went on strike a few days later. Um, the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers and grain millers, local 364 and other organizations and unions, you know, held a rally where people were workers were making their demands which were mainly um, the threat of their jobs being outsourced to Mexico, uh, management um, attempting to bring about what they call an alternative work week, which, if I understood it correctly, uh, workers would uh, work 12 hours a day on three to four days a week, but they would only start receiving overtime after working 40 hours. So I believe this was basically a ploy to keep people from receiving um, overtime money. And some reports are saying that people were taking on 12 and 16 hour shifts during the pandemic because these snack companies, like so many other corporations, were making money hand over fist, all boom profits during the pandemic, which I think is maybe a commentary in and of itself. Snack sales went up. People are stuck at home. You're bored. What do you do? You reach over, you grab a bag of chips, you open it up, you eat it. Maybe it takes your mind off the insanity of the world for a moment. You know what I mean? And uh, so there's just, we see, and you mentioned a couple of these early in our conversation too, um, Monica, we see these incidents of workers just being fed up with being the mules of this system and mounting a real fight back and organizing amongst themselves to 
fight for their rights, both as workers and human beings, because workers' rights are human rights. And to me, Monica, that's where the real hope is in this moment, where so many things seem to be going wrong all at once in extreme ways. The only real ray of light is the fact that people clearly still understand that it will take a movement to really uh, get all these things that we know that we all need. And I really feel like we're seeing that not only in the Nabisco's worker strike, but, you know, in all the sort of different labor struggles that we're seeing happening in the country right now. Most definitely. You know what this, I appreciate you bringing up um, the boom, you know, that a lot of these snack companies have experienced during the pandemic with more people working from home or just even those who can't work from home, um, staying home with everything shut down and just snacking, watching the reality TV shows, scrolling through social media, you know, whatever, um, to, to get some sort of escape, to get some sort of comfort. Um, you know, I, I was actually um, out of the country when the Nabisco worker strike popped up, but, you know, it, it reminded me a lot of um, the Frito-Lay strike um, that uh, went on back um, in last month. It feels like a, a while um, with so much of the, the labor um, organizing that's been popping off. It feels like even longer ago, but um, they went on strike over very similar conditions. Um, and you're and you're right with this um, alternative work week idea. I, I mean, just these corporations doing every single thing they can um, to extract um, the most um, that they possibly can get out of their workers. And I, I think it's just something so powerful to see um, this strike pop off um, in Portland and just spread across the country like wildfire. Um, these folks are now entering their, it's now their 20th day um, on strike. And it's just really incredible to see. We're talking about folks um, uh, going off um, and working 16-hour shifts. And it was really interesting to me to see how um, this also connects, as you mentioned, um, with this um, broader um, uh, mobilization, uh, you know, moving this low-wage work um, uh, offshores, you know, to Mexico. Um, and, you know, uh, one of the most egregious examples, and I actually uh, grew up not too far away from a Nabisco plant um, in North Jersey, in Teaneck, New Jersey. Um, I always remember passing it by and, you know, smelling all the sugary sweets. And, of course, as a small child, I'm not totally uh, understanding um, uh, the um, hellhole conditions that these uh, workers um, work in. And... I think um, one uh, crazy thing um, out of the, the Frito-Lay um, example that we saw last week, I mean, these folks were forced to work 84-hour work weeks. They were working something called suicide shifts, where they already had 12-hour shifts. That was like the standard. Then they... Um, uh, were forced to work an extra four hours, and then they would be forced to come in the next day. So they, they barely have enough time to go home, to sleep, to just do the basic necessities of life. I remember speaking um, to uh, the uh, the uh, union rep there um, at that Frito-Lay plan, and it's the, the same union, um, the BCTGM, and uh, he's talking about, you know, the these work hours, these work conditions destroy families. Um, because these workers literally have no time um, to even spend um, time with their own friends, their own families, their spouses, right? 
so um, it's really cr- incredible to see um, these 1,000 uh, plus Nabisco workers, um, again, um, from damn near coast to coast, from Georgia to Colorado, um, to Chicago, to um, Richmond um, here, and um, and really just hit um, the picket line and hold strong, and especially as um, this parent company, um, Mondelez International, has tried to put out all these press statements saying, you know, we've done the best to bring, you know, what we can to the bargaining table, and we're offering this, this, and that, and trying to, um, of course, you know, put the burden of blame on the workers themselves for refusing to um, accept the contract that isn't enough, um, as so many of these workers have already um, un- uh, taken um, and dealt, accepted so many concessions, um, brutal, brutal concessions. Um so, I mean, it's just really um, incredible and speaks to um, the, again, to just see um, the political, the economic moment that we're in with everything that the pandemic, I think, has exposed um, for a lot of workers. I think we are, we're living in a time where class consciousness in this country is growing at such a rapid rate. Um, we saw, again, millions and millions of Americans saw um, the billionaire class get away like bandits. Um, during this pandemic, make um, trillions plus dollars um, while so many people lost their jobs, while so many people um, saw their salaries, um, their incomes decrease, um, while so many people um, saw their loved ones die um, of this um, of this virus. While we still don't have um, Medicare for all, at the very least, at the very least, while we still pay more um, than any other um, uh, highly developed industrialized country for healthcare, yet we have some of the highest uh, rates of infant mortality um, than any other highly developed country. So um, the the stitches, um, these faulty stitches holding this uh, society together um, are tearing at the seams and more and more people are seeing every single day that they have more to gain when they unite with other workers um, and demand better in their workplaces, demand better in their schools, demand better in their communities on every single issue. And I I can't even separate any of this labor organizing from the movement for Black Lives. That was a beautiful thing that we saw out of the um, Amazon Union Drive down in Bessemer, Alabama, that um, so many of these workers, a majority black workforce at that warehouse, were galvanized by the movement for black lives. Um, all of these things are connected, and the more and more um, that the working class um, sees um, that all these issues that impact their lives every day are connected, um, that our enemies are one and the same, um, the more we'll have those enemies shaking in their boots, and I bet you they already are. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned a little earlier, Monica, that um, you you were out of the country. I know you were uh, just in Colombia on a labor delegation. I was hoping you could tell us about uh, uh, what the situation like there is in Colombia and how do you think labor struggles there connect to uh, similar trends here in the States? Sure. Um, You know, what Colombia is dealing with right now is the aftermath of um, the largest strike in its history, El Paro Nacional, um, which popped off at the end of April and went on for almost three months. And um, it is a time where we are seeing um, near half of the Colombian population um, living in um, or below the poverty line, where uh, we are seeing five years after the peace accords um, were signed, ending um, the longest um, civil war in the world. 
um, between um, the uh, the Marxist, the anti-capitalist um, FARC uh, uh, armed revolutionary forces of Colombia and um, all of these um, far right-wing fascistic paramilitaries hired by multinational corporations, including those um, headed um, in the United States and um, these narco-traffickers that have just um, destroyed um, so many lives across the country um, and have found um, solace and friends um, over here in Washington, D.C., right? And funding as well um, of their national police, of their um, essentially SWAT team force, ESMAD, um, which um, we saw, thanks to social media, um, uh, just committing the most horrendous um, acts um, against uh, crimes against humanity during um, the national strike. And um, we're seeing um, some divisions um, in the left, um, some divisions um, in the organized labor movement, but also um, in the same uh, uh, on the same coin, um, an incredible amount of organization um, and an incredible amount of militancy um, in terms of the labor movement. You know, um, most of uh, Colombian workers work in the um, informal sector, um, are subcontracted, um, or are completely just independent workers who just you know uh, vend their own fruits and vegetables or other homemade um, artisanal items. And uh, we see only about four percent of the Colombian workforce is in organized labor, um, but organized labor um, has an incredibly militant history. Um, Colombia is one of the most dangerous places to be a unionist. Um, and we've seen, even with the peace accords and both sides, um, the FARC and the paramilitaries, um, you know, promising to, to put down their guns. We've seen these paramilitaries that are in complete collusion with the Colombian state um, fail to uphold their end of the deal. And um, the violence against human rights defenders, the violence against um, campesino farm workers in the countryside um, has only escalated um, since the peace accords were signed. Um, so we're seeing a moment where, um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of the hope um, that was brought about um, around the time of the peace accords, um, you know, I spoke to unionists, I spoke to campesinos, I spoke to um, students um, who are organizers in Alfaro Nacional, um, all, all, all sectors of society. I got to um, speak with um, organizations um, and, and activists um, representing people from all over Colombia, and all they want is peace. All they want is peace, and that's what they have been organizing and fighting for. And um, uh, one really beautiful piece um, of street art that, that I saw that I felt really um, encapsulated um, so much of what um, is, is happening in the wake of, of, I mean, these decades of violence, but in particularly um, what everyone was able to see um, on an international scale with the repression of Altaro Nacional. Um, and it says, Janos um, Gabaron Hasta El Medio, which means, um, and um, my pronunciation is not for any native native speakers listening. And it basically says that um, they've stolen everything, including our fear. And I think um, that is something that perfectly encapsulates this political moment that Colombia is in. The people are highly organized and they have no fear. Absolutely. And I mean, I think we have to see about how, you know, just important it is to 
uh, build and strengthen the international working class movement in the same way that we talk about building a, a, a broad people's movement here in the United States. Because those same forces of capital that exploit us here are doing the very same thing across this globe, and we have to organize to stop it. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. want to thank Monica Cruz so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.